0: So, uh, Vidya, welcome to the the Islam Unraveled podcast and webinar, um, our anti-racist kind of discussions we have with leaders, uh, at least across Canada, but now you're our first international uh, 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 guest and and really just admire the work uh, that yourself and Moonshot has done since 2015 and very innovative approaches like uh, very compelling. Even this, um, maybe before we go into the redirect and the technological uh, innovations you've developed, let, let's talk about you and your background and and your personal journey that led you to to moonshot as a starting point.
1: Yeah. Um, so first, first of all, thank you so much for for having me, Tarik. It's yeah, it's it's great to it's great to get a chance to speak to you and. Um, Yeah, my my background and my journey into this field came probably about 12 years ago. I I had always worked on issues related to um, diverse societies, anti-racism issues, um, migrant rights, And increasingly, I started to feel around 12 years ago, I started to feel this frustration because I knew if I was going to be dealing with racist movements, if I was going to be dealing with prevention and and countering far-right extremism, I started to feel this urgency that I I needed to actually interact with people in these movements. I, I, I didn't understand what would actually push someone to join a hate group and how someone could end up in that worldview. So I um, took a, a, a page out of my own, uh, out of my own kind of educational uh, background. I, I had studied anthropology and had spent time learning about, about fieldwork methods and um, you know how you go around doing life history interviews and uh, and kind of embedding yourselves with with uh, with cultures that you want to understand. And I thought, well, you know, can I can I do this with white nationalist movements? So I spent uh, two years on a mission really to meet with people in white nationalist movements um, to understand their own life journeys, uh, to do life history interviews with them and to understand the pathways into this sort of worldview and mindset. And it was uh, a really bizarre and strange and very challenging experience um, doing that, especially as as a woman of color. But for me, it was really transformative in terms of my understanding of what we can actually do to get people out of these these sorts of ideologies. For me, it kind of showed me a little bit about the, the human stories which underpin these sorts of movements. And as I started to understand better the life journeys which took people into white nationalist ideologies, I started to more clearly see and understand well, how could we actually intervene? How could we actually get someone out of this mindset if this has been their journey in?
0: Yeah, no, I totally understand. And and myself as well, being uh, of uh, Pakistani and Indian origin, although born and raised in Canada, um, to, to one, look at our own uh, uh, cultural identity and our, and our ethnic identity, but also our identity as, uh, Americans or Canadians, uh, that, uh, you know, we, we being raised in, in Western countries. Uh, we, we are a minority. Whereas if, if I was raised in Pakistan or India, you know, the, the majority of people look like us, we're not a minority, we're a majority. So growing up in these societies, we, we, we get a sense that, okay, we are different. I grew up in an all white, uh, a town called Fort St. John in the north of British Columbia and so as a result it kind of informs uh, people's attitudes and biases based on their religion and their their, their background and so you know with, with white nationalists and uh, how you and I were introduced uh, by Tony McAleer formerly of Life After Hate and uh, he's also a neighbor actually we live uh, close in the same neighborhood and we got connected uh, at one of our Islam unraveled outreaches at Temple Shalom, which is a synagogue not far from here where he actually uh, did a, a racist act of vandalism in the 80s against the synagogue. And so uh, I was invited there by the, the rabbi of the, the, the temple and uh, Tony was giving his story about what led him to create this act of vandalism, and uh, and he was there to kind of make amends and and so that's how I met Tony and then we started talking about various things and he mentioned you and your work and and the more I've read the more that I've seen on YouTube I'm I'm amazed and it just it's just incredible work that that you've been able and the team you've been able to put together I understand you have about 50 people on your team so far
1: we do, yeah. It's been a um, it's been a, a journey over the last five and a half years. Um, so my my co-founder Ross and I set up the organization uh, in September of 2015. We started with just the two of us, and we we had a vision for what the this the sector and the field responding to extremism and violence needed. Um, We felt that there was a need for an organization that was equipped to develop technology and to use technology in more innovative ways to, to actually proactively engage with people that are getting involved in these sorts of activities online. So we set up just the two of us and then we grew organically over the years. So now five and a half years in, we have a team of roughly 50 staff and a really a really diverse set of backgrounds and experiences which we've brought together. Um, we do of course have some developers and software engineers and people with that kind of technical background, but we also have a large portion of the team who have backgrounds completely unrelated to technology, um, who have spent years engaging with deeply vulnerable individuals who are potentially violent. We have a, a, former, um, a, a former nurse psychologist on the team, we have um, folks who have worked in, uh, in kind of security and, and counter for many years. We have human rights activists, um, people who have been focusing on freedom of speech uh, and, and especially as we're dealing with the online space. It's so important for us to have this really diverse set of, of backgrounds and experiences which are working to co-design a lot of our methods to interact with these audiences online.
0: And what you've done, uh, because uh, the philosophy is it's not just a technological solution, it's a real-world solution to really engage with the people that are searching for extremist uh, content online that could potentially be radicalized to violence, whether they're white extremists or Muslim extremist or Hindu nationalists. So there, there are... A number of uh, kind of fronts in which racism is rearing its ugly head and so uh, in terms of white extremists as an example white nationalism because that is really the at least here in the west this is 72 uh, percent of domestic terrorism are conducted by uh, people that are right-wing extremists uh, white nationalists white supremacists white separatists i know there's a number of descriptives and so um, in in your view, based on what you've learned about uh, movements in in North America and Europe, what are the the overriding kind of issues like uh, that that are is motivating uh, these type of behaviors that 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 are uh, going towards violence?
1: It's a it's a big question, Tariq, because you know I. I think um, you know had you asked me that question 10 years ago my answer might be different from from what i'm seeing today um you know we were once in a context where we were once living in a context where these kinds of ideologies were really relegated to the fringes when i started doing work on on far-right extremism I considered myself to be working on fringe movements, on movements which were really small, um, you know, very tiny groups of individuals that were pushing very violent, very destructive ideologies. Um, they were very much, in most cases, shunned from the mainstream. Um, and you know, that didn't lessen the importance of the work. In fact, a lot of my work was advocating for governments and for the tech companies and other, uh, other institutions to be taking this seriously. The context has now changed. If we fast forward, um, you know, t- 12 years since I since I entered this space, fast forward to now. Um, I have never seen anything like the context that we're 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 living through today in terms of the scale of this problem, the, the mainstreaming of this problem in many, in many cases. And I, I, I think it's it's due to a number of reasons. I mean, we we've always known that extremist movements of, of any type thrive in moments of crisis. We, we know that whether we're talking about white supremacists, whether we're, whether we're talking about is, Islamist extremist movements, whatever the movement is, crises are moments where we typically see these kinds of actors grasping to turn fear and anxiety in society into an opportunity for them to grow and for them to break down society as we know it. And, and I think the last year in particular has seen across the globe multiple current concurrent crises that are happening at the same time, compounding each compounding the other, and leading to really high levels of, pu- of public anxiety. And those are those those moments create a really clear opportunity for extremists to exploit. And you know, white white supremacists, white nationalists, far right extremists have taken advantage of all of these crises which have taken place over the last year plus. The pandemic is, of course, one of those crises, um, and it, it also has really practical implement- implications for how we communicate um, across North America. Just like just like you and I are dialing in today uh, over over Zoom, there are so many people who are doing every every all of their face to face encounters are now taking place over the internet. We're all as a society spending more time online. And we started to track in the the early um, days of the pandemic, we started to track a significant increase in uh, the activity of hate actors and white supremacists across the US, across Canada, across Australia, and New Zealand, a range of other countries. So you know, there was, in addition to there being crises and moments that these groups can kind of grasp and hold on to and try and exploit, we're also in a context where more people are online than ever before. And so we're seeing this really unique moment where the scale of hate online is such that, you know, I, in our five and a half years of, of, of running Moonshot, I've never seen anything like this. And it, it is really scary and very worrying. Um, what's very worrying to me that I've seen in the last six months, in particular, the last six months to a year, is really this kind of blending and merging of a number of different related. But once distinct ideologies and movements everything from you know white nationalists and white supremacists the kind of neo-nazi the old-school neo-nazi movements to armed groups and patriot movements all the way through to anti-vax um, conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxer movements um, through to election conspiracists and and the wider QAnon movement all of these movements which were once separate and distinct have started to merge, come together and reach much wider, much more mainstreamed audiences. So that's the main distinction that I'd make between how I'd answer your question had it been 12 or 10, 10 years ago versus today and just the unique, very worrying context that those of us who are trying to fight this problem are, are in today.
0: And and with, with uh, the internet and uh, I would say, uh, naively, uh, some time ago, I, I thought racism was was going down, uh, but with uh, social media algorithms and uh, to the metrics in which uh, companies are judged is by their their quarterly results in terms of users, in terms of uh, interaction times, and so whether wittingly or unwittingly, uh, social media companies have become complicit in. Uh, in uh, in a way, to to basically, content is being served up to individuals based on their interests, and it's become a social dilemma, according to that documentary, in which uh, which uh, everyone's worldview is being reinforced by content that that supports their. Uh, their their kind of worldview. So if it's a white extremism or content that is defamatory against immigrants or, or or Muslims or or people of other backgrounds and religions, so that uh, information is going to keep popping up in their YouTube feed, their Facebook feed, to reinforce again their biases, their prejudices, and 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 their their racist beliefs, and then where you come in especially is to try and stop violence like countering violent extremism so there's the the kind of larger global hate where people just don't like other races religion but they may not necessarily become violent uh, but they may in their workplace or as an educator they may have a bias against people but they won't necessarily act out in a violent extremist way but at the funnel in which you're trying to, or you are effectively being able to uh, utilize technology and partnering with technology companies to be able to come up with a unique approach. And I've got to say, what a great uh, strategy, the redirect method. So please describe that, because that is an amazing uh, kind of uh, collaboration that you've done with Google. And uh, and please talk about that, how that came to be and the effectiveness of it.
1: Yeah, happy to. And I, I might just also start by saying, um, you know, that the tech companies on their own can and should be doing so much more on this on this issue. Um, you know, I think we've seen over the last several years uh, a willingness by the tech companies to respond when it came to uh, responses to ISIS or to Al Qaeda and and other terrorist organizations. And you know, my my perspective on this is that I've just seen over the last several years the systematic Uh, Underestimation and overlooking of the far-right extremist threat by the tech companies, um, and a you know being very frank in many cases an unwillingness to respond. Now I think that's changing, and I think there's more of a willingness uh, that I've seen in the last in the last year uh, in the last actually I should say the last two years since Christchurch. But then the last year in particular, and then we all saw post um, the January 6th insurrection in the US, we saw tech companies again taking you know, a, a moment to, uh, to take unprecedented action on their platforms. But I think there's a lot more that can be done. And that's you know, not just in the moderation space, the content moderation, content removal space, but also in the proactive intervention space, the positive intervention space. And this is where we've focused a lot of our efforts and our partnerships with the tech companies. Is um, you know bearing in mind that uh, that for for nearly any digital platform, there will be some aspects of that platform which are harder to police and harder to moderate. And a good example of this is Google Search. Um, you know, you can enter anything you'd like into Google Search Engine. And more than often, more often than not, you'll be presented with exactly what you look for. Um, and it's you know, one of the great, the great um, beauties of an invention like Google. Um, but for you know, for those that are searching for harmful content, for um, for terrorist content, for violent content, it means that it's a very powerful tool uh, for, for individuals who are accessing this content to be connected with exactly what they're looking for. And so a space like the Google search function or really a search bar on almost any platform is a much harder space to moderate because you can enter anything you'd like into that that particular space. So if we recognize for a moment that there will always be some spaces on some platforms that are harder to moderate, and if we also recognize for a moment that in in defining any responses to any hate group, there's almost always going to be some content which sits in in the gray zone where it's a little bit harder to say, um, you know, this is this is 100% extremist, terrorist, or hate content. There will always be some content that falls in the gray zone, and so we recognize that, and it was one of the reasons why we started very early. Uh, in our discussions with the tech companies, thinking about not just content moderation and removal, but what are the ways that we can take advantage of these platforms, the way that they're structured, and actually um, set up a safeguarding mechanism to try and safeguard audiences that are trying to access hate content to to offer safer alternatives. So to connect them in with something that will be safer than consuming violent or, or incitement to violence content. But then secondly, how can we use these platforms to actually create a useful, a useful conduit between someone who's genu- genuinely at risk of violence and a service or, uh, or content which can try and deter them from taking that path? And you know, ultimately even, can we use these platforms to connect people in with services which in the long run can work with them? So that's what we've been working with, uh, with Google on and with a number of other tech companies. And this was where um, back in 2015, we worked with Google to co-design what's called the redirect method. And the, the main approach here was that we wanted to safeguard users that were using Google search to try and access extremist terrorist hate content. And the way that we decided to do this was actually by repurposing tools which were designed for commercial advertisers. So the same tools that Coca-Cola uses to sell us more soda um, or that Adidas uses to sell us more sneakers, um, those same tools which are used um, for making, making brands more money, frankly, we thought, well, actually, can we use and repurpose those same tools to try and save lives and try and safeguard people that are, that are attempting to do violent things online. And, and so we, we basically set up advertising campaigns to reach users that were searching for extremist content and ensure that the very first option, which comes up on, on Google search, is a safer alternative to violent or hate content. And um, you know, I, I always say there there are oftentimes people who are, and there are many folks who are working to do advocacy to push the tech companies to change their algorithms, and that's really important advocacy work that needs to be done. Our main approach here was you know, until we get to the point where we can actually push Google to tra- change their algorithms and change what content comes up organically when someone searches for, for violent content or conspiracy theories, this is a simple alternative mechanism to make sure that the very first thing that someone sees is a safer option. And so that's the method that we, that we designed with Google. We've been rolling it out internationally, including in Canada, uh, over the last several years
0: absolutely and the redirect is if somebody is searching for that there's a reason for for them to search and in our kind of uh personal study of extremists and uh, you know various uh, people that uh, that uh, do um you know these awful shootings at at churches at at, at synagogues at at mosques uh, a lot of parallels um whether uh, bullying, mental health issues, you know, certain telltale kind of isolation, kind of uh, loners, uh, people that uh, that are somehow uh, on the fringes of society, um, or do you think that's more of a stereotype of of of, of the violent extremists, or, or have you seen parallels with people that that actually eventually do these horrible acts? Um, have you seen a lot of parallels?
1: I think one of the um, so I I oftentimes hear people using the term, um, especially when we talk about far right extremists, I hear people using the term lone actors and lone wolves. Um, And I, I worry sometimes in the use of that terminology that we forget the fact that online communities are, are very real communities. So if someone organized an act of violence on their own, if they decided to take action on their own in the physical world, and they may have never met someone who's in a white supremacist movement in person, it doesn't actually mean that they're alone if they have an online community that was egging them on, that was supporting them, that was inciting violence and encouraging them to take that act of violence. And so, you know, I I I think there's sometimes stereotypes of perpetrators of, of far right extremists as being, um, you know, lo- loners basically, people who who are on their own and who, um, you know, I think there's this use, the term, the use of the term that they're just kind of crazy, um, you know, that there's something something that went wrong with them, and they're on their own and they decide to take action. And I think the way that these on, that online communities and online support works for these individuals kind of contests that idea that there's that, that people are acting on their own or that they're loners in that sense. Online communities are real and provide real support Um, And this is where, um, to some degree, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the exact same online mechanisms that get someone into a movement and that might egg someone on towards violence. And we're trying to see, well, can we replicate that in a protective sense? Can we use those same functions online to build communities and pull people back into support communities which can try and um, counter violence and, and be a safer alternative to violence?
0: Absolutely. And we talked about Google, but now the other uh, tech giant, Facebook, and uh, because of the uh, 2016 elections and uh, other countries, uh, they may not necessarily, they just want to incite uh, divisions. So uh, where are the fault lines? Uh, immigration, uh, Islamophobia. Um, uh, black racism, black lives, and certain ways to uh, to pit people against each other, so create uh, uh, opposing memes and uh, and uh, events, so uh, protest this mosque in Houston, and then uh, and then the Muslims to protest against, so so other actors that aren't uh, representing either group, but being manipulated by other sources wanting to create division uh, with existing fault lines and just. Kind of putting kerosene on 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 the spark to to inflame it more so, and so uh, recently uh, with uh, the the farmers protests in India, uh, certain uh, individuals have criticized uh, the government of India, and they've been met with uh, uh, harsh responses by. you know pro-government uh people so you can see uh there are different uh, uh on a global scale on a, a nation-state scale to to try and affect the internal uh cohesion of a country by by dividing people in a certain way they may not be uh, racist themselves but they know this is where we can divide people this is where we can create enough uh division uh, so there won't be any focus on their respective countries. Is that a fair statement?
1: I think, you know, one of the, one of the challenges for a company like Facebook will be, you know, F- Facebook has, has indicated in the last several months, in the last few months, Facebook has indicated a very clear willingness to take action when it came to, you know, the post January 6th insurrection, removing QAnon accounts, um, removing even, you know, even uh, account access, uh, you know, to the president of the United States. Now that was a very clear, it sent a very clear message in terms of what's, uh, you know, now to be considered allowable in a United States context for uh, American audiences using Facebook. I think the real challenge for Facebook is going to be, well, how how does this evenly apply across geographies? And how do we take the community safety standards, which Facebook uh, holds itself to, and apply them in countries um, with similarly politicized violent contexts? And I I think, you know, India is a really interesting example where, um, you know, with Hindu nationalist uh, extremist movements and with the the real possibility and evidence around how how nationalist politics can ultimately incite violence, um, you know, and can spiral outwards in terms of the spread of conspiracy theories and lead to real violence on the ground. I think there is a a real reckoning, which needs to happen within Facebook around how to apply the community standards that they've held themselves to and apply them across geographies. Um, and this is where I'll, you know, I'll say, it, you know, these community safety standards were written many years ago, were applied applied specifically in the case of ISIS and, uh, and, and Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. We're now starting to see for all the tech companies, those community safety standards start to be applied around far-right extremism. But a lot of that has been done in the context of what far-right extremism looks like in the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, um, white nationalists and, and European countries, white nationalist or neo-Nazi movements. And we need to start thinking about how how these sorts of community safety standards apply in contexts like Buddhist nationalist extremism in a Sri Lankan context or in a Myanmar context, how it applies to Hindu nationalist extremism in an Indian context, and many other countries.
0: And and you brought up... um uh even myanmar and the the buddhist um so facebook uh uh, in in that particular case because they didn't necessarily have the 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 staff to moderate language and uh and the genocide that happened in myanmar largely happened through the platform of of uh incitement content that uh, motivated a lot of people in, in 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 myanmar to and then their, their actual military to, to really, uh, harm all and kill so many people so in in that particular case obviously Facebook is saying oh well you know we're, we're not responsible for genocide we're not responsible for the these things but but people are using that platform to spread uh, fake uh, or insightful content that that's motivating to, to violence and so on a very big scale we can see hundreds of thousands of people killed and injured and displaced uh, and because the message uh, can get out that much faster uh, using Facebook and content on Facebook. Whether it's the New York Times or me putting up something today, the content can look very similar. And uh, from what I've studied to a degree, it seems like authentic and real news doesn't get circulated as much as uh, as the most extreme. Kind of fake uh, content uh, gets spread much more faster. QAnon conspiracy theories are shared much more in the millions and millions than, than actual real news.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, I, I think I, I I think you know for the tech companies they have so often waited until it's far too late to take action. Oftentimes, I I only see strong action come in the aftermath of some horrible, um, you know, tragic, a tragedy, you know, a, tra- a, um, you know, a, a moment where lives are lost. We, we saw this after the Christchurch attack, um, you know, that it, it took the Christchurch attack for tech companies to come together and be willing to take a stance and be willing to, to respond. Um, I've also seen the tech companies wait until they will face legal re- repercussions or fines uh, as a result of inaction. And so, you know, I, I think there is a real moment now where the tech companies need to um, you know, recognize that we now have more than enough evidence that their platforms are used and abused to spread violent content to incite violence and that that directly spills over and leads to real world violence. I think we have more than enough evidence across the globe to prove this. Um, unfortunately, Unfortunately, in the world that we live in, I I think uh, when an incident takes place in the United States, given that so many of these tech companies were founded in the United States, that um, sometimes that prompts more action and quicker action than when these sorts of horrific tragedies happen internationally. Uh, And that's maybe more of a comment around a commentary around um, how the the world works um, and around around, uh, how tech company incentives. But unfortunately, that's the context that I I think has unfolded. Now, after the January 6th insurrection, we are starting to see the tech companies take greater action. Uh, They're they're more willing to respond when it comes to far-right movements, to white supremacist movements, QAnon. I really hope that there is a reckoning inside the tech the, the tech sector right now, um, which is global in nature and, and where they really push themselves to think through, well, how do these same standards apply in non-Western contexts and in contexts where so many more lives have been lost uh, and, and where real action is required.
0: Absolutely. And would you say, uh, because the executive ranks may have a lack of diversity, uh, from those countries that are readily afflicted, different uh, religions, different races, different backgrounds that may not be represented in the executive uh, ranks of of these major tech companies. And as a result, uh, because there's no personal connection to possibly these countries and these these faiths and, and, and backgrounds, so the priority and immediacy of, of responding uh, just because of that. Uh, uh, just to give you an example, we, we, we had a, a meeting with uh, uh, transit police here in, in, in British Columbia, and uh, there's been a lot of attacks on Muslim women that uh, wear hijab in particularly. And uh, right off the bat, they said, well, all the police chiefs and senior police executives are all white Caucasian, so they may not necessarily relate to what a Muslim woman in a hijab has to go through or or people of color and and as a result it's top of mind not not a big priority because it doesn't affect them directly and would you say that because now these companies are so big in some cases their 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 valuation as a company is much more than even countries that uh that uh, the, the responsibility on these companies so so uh so much that uh that really because they are global platforms their technologies are in, in virtually every country of the world but uh, the the genocide that's happening, or happened in Myanmar, uh, what's happening in China with with. the the Uyghur Muslims um, uh, so all of these things happening around the world and a lot of the mobilization of hate and violence is on their platforms Uh, it's great that you're working with Google it's amazing work now with with Facebook and and these other organizations what would you uh, recommend in terms of because a lot of people are consuming and spending a lot of time on Facebook Instagram WhatsApp and a lot of uh, hate is being disseminated on their specific platforms um In respect of that, does Moonshot have uh, uh, aspects of your team working on on those specific platforms and, and, and different solutions around that?
1: Yeah, um, th- those are really important points. Um, and I, I think the, the point about diversity um, in leadership in this space, it applies not just to the tech companies, but it's very similar to um, some of the challenges facing governments who are uh, developing their own counterterrorism and and counter extremism uh, policies and protocols. I mean, we've seen the impact of lack of diversity in the counterterrorism space. Um, you know, we've seen highly discriminatory policies um you know discriminatory implementation of policies uh take place over the last several decades um whether in the united kingdom whether in the us whether in in uh in a range of countries um you know and that that we've seen what can happen when we don't have diverse more diverse voices at the table when we're designing policy uh policy measures to to deal with terrorism and so I, i think some of those same learnings apply very much so to the tech space and to the tech sector. Um, And I I think diversity at the executive levels within the tech sector will be really valuable and really helpful in, in, in helping these sorts of companies design better solutions and more global solutions. Um, We as Moonshot, we do work with a a number of those platforms that you've listed. Um, We work with them not only to get a better understanding of how these different threats are and and how these different violent movements are operating on their platforms, but increasingly we are working, um, and very much so beyond Google, on positive interventions. Um, One of the aspects that we're working specifically with Facebook on is to evaluate their ongoing efforts uh, and quite new efforts to actually off-ramp users that are uh, indicating through their behaviors that they're affiliating with far-right movements or white nationalist or white supremacist movements um, to off-ramp them into uh, an exit program, de-radicalization program, which can try and work with them in the longer term. So Facebook partnered with a few different organizations, including Life After Hate in the US for their initial pilot program. And they asked Moonshot to provide third-party evaluation of this, which we um, publicly released the the findings of that earlier this year so um the the report is available for anyone in the public to look up um and i you know i i actually i, I do applaud facebook for being willing to uh, take part in a third-party evaluation of that and uh, uh, for us to release the information in the public domain. I think it's a a move towards the right direction in terms of transparency and some of their newer initiatives and newer pilot programs to respond to extremism. And it's something that we're now hoping a number of the other tech companies will will mirror and will take on and that Facebook will also grow that same program.
0: and in terms of the interventions and the, the real-world interventions, so one is the redirect method to redirect content, that that is an alternative to uh, what what the extremist content the, the, the searcher is looking for. But the real-world interventions, please describe how Moonshot will, will work towards real-world interventions and, and counselling.
1: Yeah, uh, so some of this um, comes from now you know, several decades of, of learning from practitioners around the world who have been directly interacting with people in white supremacist movements. Um, some of this, this learning actually comes first from European organizations in countries like Germany and in Sweden, where since the early 2000s, there have been programs set up to directly intervene with, with neo-Nazi movements on a one-to-one basis. So there are programs like um, Exit Germany in, in Germany or Exit Sweden in Sweden that have set up counseling initiatives to basically you know, develop tailored packages to get people out on, on an individual level to get people out of neo-Nazi movements. And a lot of those programs have pretty substantial evidence behind them over the last 20 years um, and very low recidivism rates. Um, so, so pretty high success, success rates and low recidivism. And um, you know, in, in addition to that, I also think back to my own experiences directly engaging with white nationalists and for me, that experience now 12 years ago, it was so clear the power of human connections and getting someone in or getting someone out of those movements. And when Ross and I set up Moonshot, you know, we, we both knew that we needed to start testing whether these sorts of human connections, the human connections that we know either get people into these movements or, or can get people out of these movements, Well, can we actually create those connections or or, um, facilitate those connections using the internet? And we all know from several years ago um, when the early stories were emerging uh, of uh, of young young people traveling to join ISIS um, in Syria and Iraq, um, we know a lot of the initial conversations that, uh, that were pulling people to travel took place online. So, you know, everyone's where we all, if we all agree that the online space is a space, space where people can be groomed and can be pulled in to, to take action which they otherwise wouldn't have, which is potentially violent, then I, you know, I really firmly believe, well, you know, if those human connections can be created online, we can we can use human connections to pull people towards safer actions and to and to pull people away from violent activity. So we um, at a very early stage of our organization, Moonshot started to test. The use of online mechanisms to create that sort of one-to-one engagement, and increasingly, what we're starting to do is take the redirect method, which initially was used to just connect people with static content, with you know, with videos, with um, with uh, pre-existing content, which can challenge the narrative or deconstruct the narrative what we're increasingly starting to do is partner with organizations that can provide that sort of one-to-one engagement um, with social workers um, and organizations that have teams of social workers. And what we're trying to do is use that same advertising mechanism to connect audiences that are in need of that sort of intervention directly with someone who can intervene. And the way that we're doing that is um, there's a few ways. So one is that we've partnered with organizations like Life After Hate in the US and, and what we've done is we've kind of worked to facilitate a connection between online audiences and their service to actually exit white supremacy movements. Um, in other ways, in, uh, in other programs, what we're trying to do is set up a one-to-one conversation where social workers are proactively reaching out to audience members that need those sorts of interventions and trying to start that conversation. But important for me to, to caveat here, this is all Pilot experimental programming. It will take a few years before we're in a position where we have a strong evidence base that this is something that that can have long term impacts and can actually and where we can actually facilitate that connection online to someone with uh, to off ramp them into an offline program.
0: Absolutely, and you brought up ISIS and. Uh... Al Qaeda. And uh, since uh, 2001, or even possibly before, uh, they, they did use uh, the internet in, in, in different ways to recruit people and, uh, you know, uh, have certain narratives that would motivate uh, people that had no physical connection or didn't know extremists to motivate them to, to do either something in, in the West or go physically to to countries like uh, Syria uh, and so in terms of combating the Isis narrative uh, and how to redirect and uh, and more positive content because the 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 extremist uh, Isis uh, nihilistic kind of uh uh, message, uh, it, it, it's shocking to me how it resonates with some people. Um, how would, how would, uh, how would, uh, the big tech moonshot combat the, 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 the ISIS extremist narrative and then redirect would be, you know, people that, that, that somehow that message is connecting to, to, to get them to a more positive outcome.
1: Well, a lot of the the methods that we're using to respond to neo-Nazi to white supremacist movements um, are, are are not dissimilar from the same methods that we're testing and we have been testing to engage with people who are vulnerable or who are who are um, getting involved with with ISIS support activities online. Um, the, the same technical tools we're using to, to reach those audiences. So the redirect method, that was actually a method which we designed initially to reach potential supporters of ISIS. And we've now since then expanded it to, uh, to reach out to, to audiences across other ideologies. Um, but in terms of what we reach them with, it's, it's been a similar model that we've taken. In the early days, we focused very much on deconstructing uh, ISIS's narratives, try, trying to, to um, make very clear the falsehoods around how they were um, You know, in the early days, the narratives that they were pushing around the, the caliphate, the myths that they were pushing around the caliphate and what it would look like if you traveled to Iraq and Syria. So in the early days, we were really trying to provide um, safer alternatives and deconstruction of, of a lot of the lies that they were selling. Um, increasingly, as we started to test new methods, we also started to look at the possibility of that sort of one-to-one engagement. Um, so again, bearing in mind that um, very similarly in white supremacist movements and also in Islamist extremists or terrorist movements, a lot of the initial contact between someone who's um, at risk of joining, vulnerable to joining, who's looking for some something to become a, a part of, um, Oftentimes the initial point of contact is just an individual, it's another person. It's someone who has a conversation with them. It's, um, it's, it's not dissimilar from grooming, from how grooming occurs in other contexts. And we see that across, you know, whether it's neo-Nazis, white supremacists, or whether it's um, ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda inspired groups. Um, so we started to trial test a very similar mechanism of offering that sort of individual intervention, the one-to-one conversation, offering some form of support. Um, Now, again, these are all pilot programs and we are running those sorts of pilot programs across the world in different contexts, um, not just in a North American context to reach uh, audience members who are indicating affiliation or interest in these kinds of movements. But again, they're pilot programs and it'll it'll probably take some time for us to have a significant evidence base around, around this sort of method's efficacy.
0: Absolutely, and and now uh, with Moonshot and your focus uh, right now in, in Europe and and North America, the the other international um, locales that that uh, your work is in. Please let's talk about outside of the North American Western context and and globally in in countries around the world, where again, uh, whether it's China or India or or the Middle East or what have you or Africa. Um, uh, please talk about your your. Uh, other work in, in, in non-Western contexts.
1: Yeah, so we, we, um, we focused very early on on designing methods which could be applied in nearly any context, but obviously tweaked and localized and, and working with local partners on the ground. Um, so Moonshot is an organization based in, in, in London and, in, and in, we've just opened up a, a Washington DC office. But we are never you know when when we're engaging with audiences around the world we are never the the front face of the work it's not it's not moonshot staff reaching out to audiences that are at risk we always need to find and, and partner with local organiz- organizations that are actually the ones that are able to have those conversations with people on the ground um, and so, whether it's in the United States, partnering with organizations like Life After Hate, who have, who have on the ground experience working with, uh, with, with people who need to leave these movements, in any new country that we're working in, we will work to find um, you know, the equivalent partner organizations on the ground that have all the skill sets to interact with someone who's at risk or getting involved or taking a violent path, but who may not have the technical skills or the technical ability to reach those audiences online. And our, our role in that partnership is we will work with them to get their good work, their existing work, technologically enabled so that they can start to engage with audiences online that, um, that are des- in desperate need of their support. And that's the model that we've taken, um, whether we're working in in countries like Sri Lanka, whether we're working in India, um, whether we're working in the Middle East and North Africa, um, we are are basically working to provide that technological support to organizations that already are equipped to be having those hard conversations and those tough interactions with people who are potentially violent.
0: Absolutely, And, and what I've seen with some of your work that you even have data down to the postal code like in terms of searches like down to like, so I live in an area which is nearby the University of British Columbia. And that was where majority of these uh, searches, I was shocked that the majority of these, uh, these kind of negative searches like uh, killing Muslims or what have you, like that would be from the University of British Columbia postal code, which which is shocking to me. And so so that's that's granular detail going right to this is kind of right from this city to this postal code this is the average kind of searches of extremist uh, kind of uh, searches so th- that is compelling and that is real data that needs to for municipal governments law enforcement provincial and 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 and, and, and the federal government to really understand this is happening and there needs to be uh, uh, an allocation of uh, resources and people to to address it. So now, long term, uh, because Moonshot five and a half years, a lot of progress, uh, a lot of impact, uh, pilot programs for a number of the initiatives. What are your what are the goals long term? where we are right now, what's been accomplished, I'm sure in the beginning, it, it, what's been accomplished, there's, uh, I'm sure a lot of avenues have opened up, but where do you see uh, this next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of Moonshot's work in in really meaningfully, uh, hopefully reducing uh, violent extremism? Well,
1: our, our starting point, we, we set up Moonshot really as a, a- passion project of both myself and my co-founder with me you know my my personal mission really being in the fight against white supremacy the fight against neo-nazism that was my entry point into this work it is something that i will always be um you know that that will always be my primary fight um, for my co-founder ross um, he's irish he grew up in ireland um, for him his entry point into this was really a focus on irish distant republicanism um, and so I should say upfront, even, even you know, ni- neither of us started this by working on a, a number of other extremism's which exist around the world and which our, our organization now works on. For us, extremism in any in any geography uh, across any ideology, these are all uh, you know different aspects of different sides of the same coin. Um, and we we set up an organization which was really focused on on hate and extremism at the at the heart of its work. Now, over the years, we've started to see that some of the tools and the methodologies that we've designed have application across other forms of online harm. Um, And in in the last couple of years alone, we've started to trial test, well, you know, can can some of these methods provide value in the fight against human trafficking or in the fight against child sexual exploitation online or the fight against gender-based violence online or domestic violence, um, intimate partner violence. So over the years, um, and in particular the last two years, we've started to take some of our methods and, and expand our remit as an organization well beyond just my own personal fight against white supremacy uh, or, or the organization's fight against against violent extremism. And we've started to expand our mission across online harms. So in the next five to 10 years, um, you know, I think Moonshot is, is going to, uh, our, our, our kind of main uh, ambition is to start to take the same um, challenges that we took to the, the counter extremism sector and to try and take those same challenges and the same um, creative, Kind of creative piloting of initiatives to other sectors that are dealing with online harms more broadly, and and that's where I think um, you know un- unfortunately when I, I mentioned earlier that we're seeing this blending and this metastasization of all these ver- these once distinct ideologies which are now coming together and just creating a mess on the internet. Um, just so, you know to be frank, it's just a mess of conspiracy theories, disinformation, hate, violence. Um, You know, where, where we could once be an organization focused on violent extremism, I don't think it's possible for us anymore. We need to be looking across the spectrum and thinking about online harms much more broadly. And so I, you know, I have some really ambitious um, goals for us as an organization in terms of what we want to do, not just in the fight against hate and violent extremism, but in the fight against disinformation, the fight against gender-based violence, the fight against human trafficking, the fight against um, exploitation, all of these other harms which are facilitated by the internet, I think we have a lot of value to add. So that's where um, you know I'm looking next. That's the kind of next horizon that I'm looking at and uh, which our organization is going to be taking on more more frontally
0: absolutely and and human trafficking and and domestic violence gender violence like uh, sexual orientation violence it's all you know it's the the tools can apply in in many different ways And, and violent extremism as horrific as it is but there's almost uh, equal uh, greater harms and and so I'm sure even people with suicidal behaviors um um, self-harm and, and these type of things there, there could be you know again if somebody's searching for these type of things uh, again a redirect uh, a hopeful kind of message now in terms of the redirect content um, how would that redirect content be created or how would you find it and curate it and say okay here's content that could hopefully dispel this narrative of, of this specific race and religion
1: so we, um, we, we don't create any content as Moonshot, we're not a content creation uh, you know, organization. Our main approach here is to identify and then amplify existing content, which has already been created across the globe, um, created by organizations that are doing this work. And our main aim is, is you know, to, to amplify that content with audiences that need to see it. Sometimes that content is really easy to find. Sometimes it's there. Um, it's, very, you know, it's very clearly been created by organizations and they just need to get it out to the, the right audience. Sometimes uh, our work involves finding organizations that we know are the right voices. They're the ones that are doing the work on the ground, but maybe they haven't created digital content yet. You know, maybe they haven't taken their work into the online space. Um, and so this is where some of the work that we're doing is really just around digital capacity building for organizations that have all the right ingredients, all the right skills, all the right, um, the right voices, which need to be heard, but they just maybe haven't, haven't taken their work online um, and digitized it yet. And so that's where we work with them to help them create content, which is their content. Um, they own it. They are going to use it in the longer term. And then we just create that, that kind of technical conduit between an online audience and that content. Um, we've developed a number of different tools over the last few years that help us to search for this sort of content, which could be powerful and impactful in front of someone who's at risk. Um, but our teams are sifting through thousands of videos every day to try and find that content. And um, one of our preferred ways of doing this is to start first with partners that we know are going to be authentic, going to be going have the right, the right skills and the right voices, and we'll just help them you know, get the content that they need, that they need made.
0: Uh, there's content that I came across on YouTube, you're probably aware of it Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, I don't know if you're you're familiar, Emmanuel Acho, and I thought his approach was fantastic, the way he came across, and so he didn't go with a harangue against white people, it was more trying to, uh, his line is, people don't care what you know, they just want to know you care, they want to know you care, and once they know you care, then you can explain to them but if we're trying to blame and shame and kind of demonize it's it's hard to get a message across if it's adversarial so on that note uh because again racism religious discrimination so there's towards the work you're you're working towards which is preventing violent extremism but then there's the globalized uh, racial and religious discrimination which may not necessarily prompt violence but but it is a bias like too hard people it's like they, they 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 may never do any violent act or they may never physically harm anyone or, or or any extremist things but their their belief about a race or religion is such that uh that just in their family or their their social set they 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 have this uh Uh, biased and prejudiced view and so part of engagement before it goes full-blown to the point where somebody's ready to to commit a violent act the the overall engagement between communities that may not uh, connect with one another black people and white people uh Uh, the greater Western community and and Muslims in general. And and part of our outreach, what we came across with with the outreach at churches and synagogues and public forums, the vast majority of people we interacted with said, Oh, we've never met Muslims before. And as such, they believe everything that they, so, Oh, I'll just share with you a few things that number one, there's a big fear that the Muslims are trying to implement Sharia law in, in North America, which again, there's never nothing, nothing in any Muslim uh, gathering I've ever been to that's ever been brought up, but that is a real, real fear and a real belief. And so again, these folks may not necessarily do any violent acts, but their hardened prejudice uh, requires some sort of engagement. and, And as you said, some compassion and empathy and what you did, uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago going to sit with, you know, white nationalists, not the average person can do that or have that kind of courage or kind of conviction to say, you know what, I should sit down with these folks and have a conversation with them. And I think that that in and of itself, uh, breaking bread and uh, and and having a meaningful conversation with people to really understand them it, it, it can change people just like that, just by interacting with them. And, and maybe just in closing, how did your view change? Like, because like sometimes like I, I, I kind of meet with people that that have racist views and then and I just shocks, shocks me, but how did it change you when you met with these, these groups? And did it change your opinion? Did it increase any empathy? Like maybe if you could just in closing, just talk about that, just to, to take away how
1: your views changed. Sure. Yeah. I, it, you know, it was a, it was it was the toughest experience of my life having those conversations. Um, you know, I I it it um it took a lot in me to sit through the the events that I sat through and to sit through those conversations. But I I, I learned a lot from the experience, and I think the thing which was most surprising for me was I I went into it. I went into it thinking, you know, these people are monsters. These people are horrible. And how can they even say these things about people that look like me, about immigrants, about um, you know people from my background? And I think what I what surprised me through my encounters with them was that I, uh, you know, I, I I started to I I never sympathized with their experiences. I never I never offered them sympathy in any form. But I, I started to just understand their journeys. I started to understand how someone who had experienced what they experienced or who's, who, um, who had been through their experiences in that in their unique context, I started to understand how they had ended up in this particular place at this particular time and with this particular movement. And for me, it was it it is empathy in some form, right? It's it's not sympathy and I'm not agreeing with them or sympathizing with their worldview, but I started to have some empathy for how they got there. And for me, that was crucial for me to then grant them the possibility of change. And that I think is the most important thing. That i learned through that experience is that change is possible a lot of the people that i met in the movement were not happy they weren't happy there this group wasn't providing them with um, you know every solution in their lives Um, a lot of them were deeply unhappy people and and that for me offered the opportunity that's their that's the opportunity for change for for them finding a different path in life that i actually think could be more fulfilling Um, it's, it's a deeply disturbing way to live your life. If you believe that people like me and like you Tariq are out to get you, you know, are out to get people, um, if you, if you believe the lies that they tell about, about, about immigrants, about people of color, about Muslims, about, about, um, you know, about Black people, if you b- actually believe all of those conspiracy theories and, and those, those lies, the world is a very scary place. And I started to think about what it would be like to be them, and I started to feel bad for them. I started to feel bad for them because I do not live in this world constantly filled with fear. I don't, live, I don't live my life constantly filled with fear about people that look like me or that look different from me. Um, and I, I started to feel bad for them. And, and that for me shifted the power dynamic in some ways because I started to realize, well, actually, actually, you need help. And you know, I, think, I think there's a better path for you. Um, so you, you know, it was a surprising experience, but one thing I would also, just a final point to end with, um, you know I, I don't think that the expectation should be on people that look like me or look like you to go have conversations with people in these movements. I think that's too much to ask uh, of, of anyone. I think it can be it can be dangerous um, and nobody should be putting themselves in harm's way to try and change someone's mind who's racist. But I, I think this is where technology has the power to take those sorts of interactions which could be dangerous in a physical setting and try and create those sort of encounters with someone who's different online. So this is where, you know, I, I think videos like the video that you mentioned earlier, um, the kind of the, the, the conversations with someone who looks a bit different, which already exist online. If we can take those sorts of, the, the, that sort of content and those sorts of videos out to people who have never had an encounter with someone who is Muslim or black or who, uh, who looks different from them with an immigrant, then I, I think technology has the power to create create those sort of um, interactions to provide that kind of cognitive dissonance, which sometimes doesn't exist in someone's everyday world. And that's what we're trying to do with Moonshot. We're trying to use technology to create those kinds of encounters without expecting, um, you know, people like you and me to go have those encounters in our everyday lives with people around us.
0: Well, I I have to say I'm a fan of your work and a fan of you and I really uh, admire the work that you're doing. And it takes a lot of heart uh, to do this work because change is changing people's ideas and prejudices, it's 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 not easy. And and to make that lasting change and your combined approach with online and offline really that is the way that we're going to make change and and even to diversify into the other areas that are as important because I'm sure all the tool sets and skills and, and teams that you've developed can apply to all these other important areas. So uh, where, 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 However, we can help and support. Where we're we're grateful to uh, to do so. And I want to thank you, Vidya and Moonshot, and your team for for all the great your work you're doing. Thank you for taking your time with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.